welcome back to the program. To live a full life is to make mistakes. Unlike Fitzgerald's notion of personality as an unbroken series of successful gestures, for most of us, life is messy, complicated, and often filled with regret and anger. When we look back, we realize we are, in some strange and mysterious way, the sum total of all that we have done, the meals we've eaten, the books we've read, and the people that we've touched and who have touched us. Together it forms a kind of life mosaic, unique and often compelling. Such has been the life of my guest, Daniel Menneker. Through the hallowed halls of the New Yorker where he worked for 26 years, to the pinnacles of power in publishing at Random House and HarperCollins, through the death of a mother, a brother, and his own battle with cancer, he now shares his mosaic with us in his new memoir, My Mistake. It is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Menneker back to this program to talk about My Mistake. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be back. Thank you for inviting me. Great to have you here. One of the things in in looking at your story, and I'm not sure what it is about your particular story that that brings this to the fore. Maybe it's the places you've worked, the people you've been in contact with. It sort of reminds one that in our celebrity culture today, we often forget about depth. We see surfaces, we see glamour, we see the jobs people have. We don't realize the person that's behind that and what they go through in life. Talk a little about that. Well, I think at one point in the in the book, I say, you know, that the exterior um, glamour of the kind of work I was lucky enough to do is all well and good, but that a job is a job, and that's one reason that it's called work. And I think someone just yesterday said to me that they were disappointed to read of the financial sort of fooling around that goes on in book publishing, which is in the book. There's a long section, longish section about how to acquire a book and Mm -hmm. what the financial considerations are, how much each physical object costs and so on. And she said to me, you know, I don't, I didn't really want to know that about um, profit and loss statements and uh, returns figures and so on. She said, when I pick up a book, I like to think of it as sort of sprung from the hands of God into my hands, into my hands and nothing else in between. So uh, your question um, is a very pertinent one because, you know, people with any imagination and any sympathy, I think, can understand that the production of a movie or a book or any of these cultural artifacts or for that matter, you know, a sofa. I mean, they go through the business of financial considerations, whether they're going to be successful in selling this physical object or not. A little bit different in in magazines where what you're selling is advertising space. In book publishing, you're, I mean, or trying to these days anyway, in book publishing, you're you're selling physical objects, and that aspect of the business rubs up against, uh, and your work in that business rubs up against the literary aspect. There's a kind of friction between the two objectives. And because of that balance between, one, keeping the talent happy and keeping the P&L happy and those people that you work for, there is all that strange machination that goes along with that. Is I think it was Harry Cohn once said about the movie business, it's the only business where all the assets go home every night. And, and publishing, in many ways, the same thing. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I suppose I, I can't quite... I mean, the, the comparison to movie production breaks down because at, at a certain point, although... 
as I say, the the manufacturer of any physical object, right. of any cultural physical object, even a painting, you sell that too, maybe. And I mean, the business business and co- and commerce on the one hand, and art on the other, have always sort of created this tension. And I think that um, uh, one of the differences, but I mean, writer people who write books are further removed from their public for the most part, or have been, than let's say movie actors or even directors, because. Reading is a lone, a, a, a solitudinous activity. So writers have, I mean, they really do, they, they only go home, they more or less stay home. They don't go on location usually. Tell us a little bit about your family and, and also tie it together, how your family viewed the work that you did all these years. Well, my mother and father met, and improbably, uh, because they're from such different backgrounds. My mother was from a very waspy, somewhat literary, aristocratic family, the Graces, distantly related to the shipping company, I believe, uh, Grace Lines, but, but distantly, so distantly that I didn't see any financial benefit from their <laughs> wealth. But anyway, uh, my father was from a Russian Jewish immigrant uh, family, my grandmother and grandfather never married because they thought marriage was a bourgeois oppression of the state. They had seven sons. So there, my background is, is a very um, sort of schizoid one, um, largely to my benefit, I think, because I got to know aspects of both kinds of American backgrounds, and I, I benefited from that in some ways because it made me... a kind of cultural outsider when I grew up. It also was somewhat alienating, I should say. Um, My mother worked for Fortune magazine. My father was an exporter, not very successful. Um, I had an older brother who died when I was 26 and he was 29. We were kind of a conventional family uh, after a Greenwich Village childhood. Uh, We moved to Nyack, New York, which is not so much a suburb as an exurb of New York, not many commuters went to public school there as opposed to my very progressive private school. And so we became, I mean, my brother and I sort of grew up in a kind of nether world culturally. We didn't have any religious observances. We didn't have any affiliations with any ethnic group particularly. If any ethnic group for me, it would be the Jewish half because I spent so much time with the Jewish half of my family, particularly my uncle's. And you went to, you mentioned going to school in Greenwich Village, the Little Red Schoolhouse, a school that was was pretty famous in its own right, or has become so. Yes, indeed. Uh, it's in, It certainly has enjoyed a tremendous renaissance in the last 10 years. I'm not sure if it still has the zealous, radical objectives that it did when I was there in 1945, 46, 47, 48, etc., uh, when the teachers, I think, were truly... Um, you know, would be intellectual revolutionaries and were training the next generation of intellectual radicals for the coming socialist revolution. Um, It was pretty, I mean, our headmaster, Randolph Smith, was either subpoenaed by or maybe, I, I can't remember, and I'm afraid I didn't look it up, even testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Oddly enough, the name Little Red Schoolhouse has nothing to do with radicalism. The founder of it, Elizabeth Irwin, 
that's the name of the high school associated with Little Red, was simply a progressive educator and had no particular political, um, you know, uh, causes. Uh, but it was a wonderful school. And so it was my public school. I, I wouldn't give either one of them up. Nyack taught me lots of other things. There were almost no black kids at Little Red, and there are a lot of black kids in Nyack. So, and there are a lot of other ethnicities, and it was more nearly the melting pot that New York should have been, but wasn't for me. Talk a little about your brother, because certainly you had a close relationship with him. He died, as you mentioned, at 29 in ways that you felt responsible for. My brother, Michael Grace Meneker, um, was uh, a very cool guy. Um, he uh, was tall, handsome, and um, someone that I admired and someone with whom I had, of course, we thought it was the most intense sibling rivalry, but it was also deeply affectionate and um, implicitly loving. And uh, he was always, of course, he somehow managed to stay three years older than me, no matter what I did. That was a neat trick of his. And so he was always blazing trails, and I would emulate him in certain regards. Um, He went on to Dartmouth after Nyack High School and was a member of Alpha Delta Phi, which was the origin of the movie Animal House. I visited him there and threw up there a few times. Uh, from drinking, uh, it was crazy. It was really a crazy place. The movie is not wildly exaggerated. Uh, and he was just, you know, someone that I sort of admired. And um, and uh, what happened was we were playing touch football, and I kept on playing backfield, and I got tired of it, and we were playing against our cousins in Nyack, and I goaded Mike into playing backfield, even though he knew his knees were susceptible to injury. And I knew it, too. So he first play, he damaged his knee badly and had to have surgery. And very sadly, and to me, tragically, he died from a blood infection that he got during the surgery. So that was, for me, at the age of 26, a major, I mean, I I don't need to say what a major blow it was uh, to my whole family. It was... Um, I mean, we were quite close in our way. It was a sort of strange family, but it was very, very close and loving family. And so the loss, his loss, was just so, such a powerful shock that um, I think my parents never recovered from it, although they tried and made some progress. And in a way, I've been dealing with it my whole life. Now, at the age of 72, I understand what happened and forgive myself, but um, it was one of the reasons that I began to write, as I say in the book, it sort of, I had to do something to try to gain, I was really quite messed up and I had to do something to sort of control and manage some of my, and, and, and express some, some of what had happened. And the first two or three things I wrote were uh, about this um, tragedy. There's also, jumping forward in your life, the interesting juxtaposition between your brother's death, which really was a result of, of, if not medical mistakes, the failure of of the medical system in some ways, and your own successful battle with cancer. 
Well, we could start with the fact, the ironic and sad fact that within a year or two of Mike's death, the septicemia he died of, and I don't remember the name of the bacterium, but it was something specific, was easily defeated by the development of a new antibiotic. And I preface my own um, medical challenges with that fact uh, because it is true that medicine has made amazing progress in any number of fields. It's still faced with tremendous challenges. But in my own case, um, the treatment I've received for cancer was simply not available as, as little as five years ago. And um, I won't go into the technical details of it. I was faced with a choice on the recurrence of a small lung tumor. I was faced with a choice of surgery versus a certain kind of futuristic radiation therapy, and I chose the latter. The doctors didn't have enough statistics to make a recommendation. It's fascinating to be a patient and know sort of as much as your doctors do because the database isn't available yet, comparatively speaking, surgery versus stereotactic body radiation therapy. So I chose the latter, and, you know, I don't want to jinx anything, but it's been three and a half years now with no further recurrence. I have another CT scan on February 4th. Funny I know the date so well. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that battle and really what it made you confront, how it made you look back at the life that you've written about in My Mistake. Well, I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, at the time I started the book, but it soon became very evident that that diagnosis, the treatment for it, was the sort of catalyst for my deciding to try to write a memoir um, because when you are if you if you are able to think I mean if you're not medically so compromised that you can't really function if you get a serious diagnosis uh, for certain kinds of people I guess introspective people it causes you to think about your life, because especially if you're in your 70s, you know, you have a most of a life to look back on. Um, hopefully not all of it, but most of it. And I think it, it made me not only want to write this book, in order to come to terms, to begin to come to terms with the patterns and ideas and forces in my own life, but also uh, it compelled me outside of the writing of the book to be understand, along with the bad fortune in my life, the amazingly good fortune that I had, and to be grateful not to a God that I happen not to believe in, but just to circumstance uh, for everything that has come to me. And also, you know, it's like Hallmark cards, to take small things... Um, the pleasures of small things, to take them more seriously and not take them for granted. The other thing that you show an appreciation for, beyond the, the obvious in some ways, the importance of literature and humanity and, and the way that was important to your life, is the value and importance of humor. Yeah, um, I think that humor, I, I have developed a theory that I guess I'd like to write about, but I'm psychologically an amateur I think humor, I mean, I'm, I don't quite agree with Freud's famous essay about jokes. Um, 
says they proceed from anxiety about sexuality and other right. matters. I, I, it's not so much anxiety. I think I think that the use of good humor um, by human beings uh, has to do with a mutual acknowledgement uh, among the teller and the listener of sort of, excuse me, existential bafflement, insecurity, that we, one of the ways we overcome the fact that, for instance, we die and that we get ill and that we have misadventures and so on is to make jokes about them. So it's a way of managing and controlling the sort of random craziness that really constitutes our life. I just heard the best joke, if I may tell it. Of course. I also, I also made up a joke, very short joke. What do, you, what do you get? What do you get? What happens when a goose gets a sex change operation? What? Transgander. <laughs> I made that up. I, that's the only joke I've ever made up. The other one is a very dapper old guy approaches a, a, a attractive older woman in a bar and says, may I ask you a question? And she says, well, I guess so. And he says, do I come here often? <laughs> Crack me up. You see, forgetting the first joke, the second joke, not to ruin it, if, it, if I already didn't by telling it badly, that has to do with a concern about dementia, about old age, about the fact that we all get older. And I don't want to drive it into the ground, but most humor, most humor, even in conversation, not joke telling, has to do with a mutual acknowledgement of a kind of uncertainty and insecurity that we have in just being here. It's weird. It, I've always been fascinated by the degree to which humor evolves out of really dramatic tragedies as a way for people to get their head around it. Many years ago, I mean, this goes back to the 80s, I remember when the Challenger blew up. It literally wasn't more than three hours later that I heard somebody telling a joke about it. It wasn't because it was disrespectful. It was because it was a way to understand something people were, were trying to come to grips with. Right. And to put it into, right, I'd have said four hours would have been more respectful, but that's okay. <laughs> Three, I, you know, I'd have told that person, you know, you might have waited another Wait hour. another hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that, I mean, I don't think it's such an original insight, but I do think that there, that most people don't quite know, nor should they necessarily, that the jokes they tell, the humor they evince in conversation, it almost all has to do with this kind of deep sort of radical bafflement about the con the contradiction between the human mind and the sort of animals that we are and how did we arrive in this pickle talk a little bit about what you've learned about those areas not only from your own experience that you write about but from so many of the literary lights that you've come in contact with that you've nurtured over the years well i think like i mean to to try to make a segue from humor i think that um the act of of writing and the act of reading are similarly um aimed uh, um, from the most commercial to the most high literary productions aimed at creating a, a kind of community, a kind of acknowledgement, and especially, well, I was about to say in fiction, but in nonfiction as well, to sort of 
I've always felt that a really good book allows the reader to feel understood, even if it's about totally different lives. Because a really good book events, uh, demonstrates ultimately the sort of universality of human experience and emotions. So that when you read a good book, not only are you learning something, not only are you getting psychological insight into the characters, if it's a novel, not only are you learning about you know, government corruption that involves you know, financial hanky-panky or something like that. But you're also sort of, if a writer's good, it's almost like a conversation. You can't talk back, but you do feel as if you're contributing your own sensibility to the, um, you know, to the, to the reading of this book. You're, you're part of a, you're part of a conversation. And, and larger than that um, is the community of readers. I mean, the number of book clubs in this country is astonishing. It's something like 40 million or 50 million reading groups and book clubs. And I think that shows a sort of maybe counterintuitive desire to be part of a, a real culture, of a community of letters. And I think it's a very healthy thing. It's certainly grown exponentially in the last decade, I'd say. And in many ways goes back to your last book, this idea of, of people talking, of conversation, of, of people being able to communicate with each other. Well, I think everyone has had the experience and knows the similarity between putting down a good book and feeling, as I say, sort of understood as well as understanding, uh, learning something, and also kind of contributing to the experience. The similarity between that and concluding a, a really good, aimless but close conversation where you get up uh, from the having coffee with someone and you feel good. And it's not just because of caffeine. It's because, in fact, it's neurological. It's because of the release of serotonin that a good conversation can be shown sort of physiologically to release. The, your brain actually changes when you have a good talk with someone. Daniel Meneker, his new memoir is My Mistake. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. I, um, I really appreciate the chance to blow the eight, and I will do so at the drop of a, a, drop of a hat. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.